said to me then, I'll never forget it, Daddy changed the world. I told her this afternoon, Daddy did change the world. It's been 566 days since George Floyd was murdered by a former Minneapolis police officer. His death, along with the deaths of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and others, spurred millions of people from France to Australia to Mexico and beyond to protest all over the world in support of Black lives. Welcome to Hard Truths. I'm Nyla Boudou. Since October 2020, we've been doing special podcast episodes each month looking at the issue of systemic racism as part of the Axios project we've been calling Hard Truths. We've used that lens to look at voting rights, the uphill climb finding a job after prison, even the Iroquois national lacrosse team's fight to be included in the Olympics, and so much more. Now, to end the year, we're looking past our borders at how the protests over the unfair treatment of Black Americans became a global movement. A global movement that has spurred activists in the UK, indigenous and feminist groups in Mexico, even affected museum collections in Europe. Today, we'll hear how calls for change have reverberated widely and ask whether anything has tangibly changed as a result. Black lives have always mattered. We have always been important. On June 3rd, 2020, thousands of people gathered in London's Hyde Park in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter protests in the U.S. In the weeks and months following George Floyd's murder, U.K. protests for Black Lives became the largest in the world outside the U.S. Someone else's death or someone else's trauma is like your trauma. It's like a community grieving. So when the blood is shed in the Black community, it feels like everyone, like it could be like my sister, my mom, my brother. Abba Emwa is one of the founders of Justice for Black Lives, an advocacy group that helped organize these protests. These massive crowds were spurred by the murder of George Floyd just a few days earlier, as well as an incident in the UK, the death of Belly Majinga. She was a Black transportation worker who died from COVID after complaining a customer who allegedly knew had the virus coughed on her. Majinga's death has become a rallying cry and symbol in the UK for systemic racism. The point is that someone died and they died wrongfully and they shouldn't, that shouldn't have died. And it's like we all felt it because we were all grieving and we felt like this is ridiculous, enough is enough. These protests brought conversations about the Black experience in the UK to the entire country. Abba says this is the first time in her lifetime people are finally starting to talk about it and ask questions. But that's also taken a toll. It's difficult because... All this is reliving trauma of some sense, because whilst people want to talk about it and have their conversations, the questions fall on Black people. And then we have to sit there and listen and speak about the trauma. She's also worried about a bill being debated by the British government that would give the police more power to crack down on protesters. Many experts and human rights groups have come out against the bill, saying it would largely hurt people of color who are already policed at higher rates. So now if I want to protest against the police, I have to ask the police or the government to protest. And that's, that's why I'm saying it's like we're going backwards. Abba's now studying to get her master's in public policy, largely inspired by her experience with the protests of last summer. But I asked her if she feels like the protests have inspired actual change. And she says, while in some sense, the UK does feel like it's going backwards, she believes educating people about the realities of their country 
especially Black British people, can enact change. I'm trying to be the voice to be like, guys, look what's going on so they're able to be aware so that we can really push this forward because, you know, the power of the people was much greater than the people in power. In 15 seconds, we go to Mexico City, where the Black Lives Matter movement galvanized indigenous and feminist groups. Welcome back to Hard Truths. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Earlier this week, a statue of Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest, the first Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard, was removed from the side of a highway in Nashville, Tennessee. It's just the latest in a series of Confederate-era monuments that have come down in the U.S. in the last year. And while these monuments were coming down across the country, statues were also coming down across the world, including in Mexico City, where a major Christopher Columbus statue was removed last October. The statue initially was painted over with graffiti by feminist groups who were protesting violence against women in Mexico and demanding action from the government. The graffiti couldn't be fixed, so the statue was removed. And a year later, this October, Mexico City's mayor announced she would be replacing it with a statue of a young indigenous woman who lived 550 years ago. Es el gran reconocimiento a los 500 años de resistencia a las mujeres indígenas de nuestro país. That's Mayor Claudia Scheinbaum saying it's a recognition of the 500 years of strength of the indigenous women of Mexico. For many, it's a symbol of two overlapping movements in Mexico, a growing feminist movement and the indigenous community who've been fighting for a voice for decades. Like the UK, in Mexico, these two groups have been inspired by American Black Lives Matter protests and conversations in the U.S. over the racist legacy of colonialism. That's according to Professor Alice Crozier of the College of Mexico's Center for Sociological Research. There was actually fairly little talk about these subjects until quite recently, um, at least on the broader level. And that has to do something with the particularity of the national project of Mexico, which is something called mestizaje miscegenation, um, where the idea was that there are no races in, in Mexico because everything is a mix of everything that came together from indigenous cultures and uh, the Hispanic uh, conquerors that arrived 500 years ago. And so we don't have to speak about racism because we don't have any races. So how much do you think different movements have embraced the Black Lives Matter message and adapted it to their particular group? I think the movement is very important for local movements, for both movements, indigenous movements and feminist movements, because what it says basically is that a group that has been uh, invisibilized actually matters sufficiently and can go out and pronounce their demands on, on the streets. And this has been very important for the feminist movement, uh, where 10 uh, women or girls are killed each day. At the same time, for the indigenous movements, it's also very important because it speaks to this visibilization. People from the indigenous movements have been that, you know, it's great that there's going to be a representation, but uh, they have to start respecting our lives while we are alive and not, uh, you know, wait until something happens. And this goes for both movements uh, at the same time. So when the Black Lives Matter protests really began in earnest in the U.S. in May of 2020, what effect did that have, for example, in Mexico City? Um, yeah, it's difficult to say what effect specifically this one factor had, because there were several factors that came together at that moment. In Mexico, we're celebrating 
or mourning the 500-year fall of Tenochtitlan, which was the historical capital of Mexico before the uh, Spanish conquest. Um, and, and also parallel, uh, the president that's been in charge for the last three years has been a lot more outspoken about these issues. And there has been a lot more public discourse about these, these issues. And what is it like to have political leadership that addresses this, which is a contrast to, for example, when the protests were happening in the U.S. and having President Trump, who was very opposed to discussing Black Lives Matter or any of those movements? Yeah, I think this is also interesting because the president has been very outspoken uh, in favor of indigenous groups and he has been very little favorable towards the feminist movement. So there's a, there's a split response, maybe, in terms of political uh, acceptance or support. I think that it definitely is a change in comparison to how former governments treated the question. So now the question is at the table, and that's important. I think at the national level so far, most of the support is symbolic, which is important, but uh, it's also not overly mm, ambitious, let's say, in terms of saying, uh, we will change the economic situation of these disadvantaged groups, which, which are mostly indigenous groups. Alice Crozier is a professor at the Center for Sociological Research at the College of Mexico. So far, we've been talking about the Black Lives Matter movement in terms of protests, but it was more than that. As Alice and Abba have said, it reinvigorated conversations around race and equity. That happened in boardrooms, universities, and even museums, as cultural institutions in many countries are beginning to confront racist legacies of colonialism in new ways. That's been most visible in a struggle over who owns more than 1,000 plaques from the 16th and 17th century Kingdom of Benin, which is now present-day Nigeria. Even though they're collectively called the Benin Bronzes, the intricately carved pieces are actually made of brass. And in the last year and a half, some American and European museums have begun to return these stolen artifacts. Curators within German museums and scholars and activists made the determination that although Germany bought the Benin bronzes in its national collections in the open market, they recognized the original circumstance of their looting from Benin and made the decision that it was wrong what happened in 1897 ought not to have happened. Chika Okeke Ogolo is the director of the African Studies Program at Princeton University, where he also teaches in the Department of Art and Archaeology. I asked him to tell us a story of how these statues ended up in these Western museums. In January of 1897, British soldiers invaded the then Kingdom of Benin. Part of the decision that was made in England was that for them to embark on this military operation, it had to be accounted for. And one of the reasons that the proponents of war had made is that, well, they had treasures in the palace that, if recovered, could be sold off to pay for the cost of the military invasion. So this was what led to the looting of thousands of bronzes and ivory objects and invaluable artifacts that had been in the palace for hundreds of years. Today, they are found in major museums around the world, including the Metropolitan Museum in New York, 
the Field Museum in Chicago, and several other major museums in Europe. How much of an effect did the Black Lives Matter protests and all of these conversations have on Germany and now maybe put more pressure on other countries to do the same? Well, it was tremendous. It became a nodal point, really, when the Black Lives Matter spread across the world. Issues that had been related to colonization, cultural colonization, became hot topics again. And that's precisely what has happened with a restitution, that it's the same young people who were championing the Black Lives Matter movement that are also putting pressure on their own institutions to pay attention to the rather long-standing issues about restitution of cultural objects. What role would you like to see museums playing in this moment? At the University of Michigan, they have recently organized this exhibition called I Wish You Were Here, whereby they have researched objects in their collection that they believe were looted and use that as a basis for thinking about the cultural lives of these objects with the intention, if at the end of their research, they determine that these objects were indeed looted, they are more than willing to return them to their uh, claimants. And so this is the kind of research that I would like to see museums begin to do, rather than the knee-jerk a response of, well, you know, if we start on this road, then we'll lose everything. Chika Okeke Ogolo is the director of African Studies at Princeton University. He's also a professor of art and archaeology. All over the world, countries are still struggling to reckon with systemic racism. Here in the U.S., police reform plans have fizzled and federal voting rights bills have stalled. But many see signs of hope in the conviction of the former officer who killed George Floyd and the three men who killed Ahmaud Arbery. Statues of Confederate and colonial figures have been toppled, and sports teams have been renamed. And perhaps the most tangible change is that all of us are talking about these issues even more, including us at Axios today. Thank you for going on this journey with us over the past year as we've explored these hard truths. Thanks also for listening and for the feedback you've sent about this project. You can find the entire Hard Truth series, along with more stories on systemic racism in the U.S., at our website, axios.com. And as always, we want to keep hearing from you. You can email us at podcasts at axios.com, or you can find me on Twitter at Nyla Boodoo. Axios Today is brought to you by Axios and Pushkin Industries. This episode was produced by Nuria Marquez-Martinez and edited by Alexandra Boti. Alex Sugiyara is our sound engineer. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Sarah Kehilani-Gu, and executive producer, Julia Redpath. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we're back with the news on Monday.